with me to Romans chapter 2, please. As we continue this study of the book of Romans, an incredible... You know, when you love God's Word, it's easier to go to Bible study. <laughs> it's like when you get a, a bunch of pastors together, they talk about church. You get a bunch of airplane pilots together, you, they talk about airplanes. You get a bunch of lawyers together, they talk about the courtroom. But, um, you know, for those of us who really love the Bible, which we should be growing in our love for the Bible, I hope you have sensed, experienced, seen the transformative power of God's Word. Last Sunday, when I, I was even hearing God's Word, as uh, the Lord uh, gave me the privilege and enabled me to preach it, I was overwhelmed by the goodness of God, talking about time and how He sees time, not because time changes in heaven, though he can't go outside of time, but, but because of his nature, it is his very love, and it is his just desires for us that causes time to be as one day is a thousand years, a thousand years one day, incredible. And it's incredible by many standards, but especially as you contrast who God is in light of who we are. And when we do that, as the Word of God does that, it, it kind of, it, it, it causes, well not kind of, deep change in us, or it should, as we meditate on the goodness of God. And that's what it's talking about here in Romans chapter 2. Let me read verse 1 again. I'm going to go down to verse 11, see if we can get it all in as we go back over verses 1 through 6 in a way. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, you who judge, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God... We know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves Wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first, and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works, what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. 
And we see in Matthew's gospels, these, gospel, these two men who go, and it is more of a story uh, that Jesus is illustrating a truth by. He's, and, and you got the Pharisee who goes up, and he lifts his head high to the heavens, and he says, oh, I thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector, the sinner, the publican, that I tithe of all my goods, that I pray, that I fast. Then you have this publican who comes, and he has his head bowed in reverence and in realization that he is a sinner. He beats his chest. He says, oh God, please forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus said, which one do you think goes away justified? Well, people say, well, I, I get your gist here. It's got to be this guy who goes away uh, forgiven. It's because he realizes, but it's so much more than that. What Jesus is saying is this person who is a wicked sinner, but who acknowledges his sin is actually justified. That means he is born again. And all of the implications of that salvation, that he's going to heaven, that he's going to spend eternity in peace, and that peace of eternity is the presence of God. And this other person will not go to heaven. He will spend eternity separated from God because of his self-righteous heart. And you could say, in a way, that Romans 1 is the publican, describing that publican. Romans 2 is describing the Pharisee. Not just the Jews, but yes, the Jews and the Greek or Roman moralists. Those people that, that want to earn favor in eternity with God through their desire for immortality, their desire for righteousness and holiness, and it addresses that. This, and, and especially as you go further in verse 12, which we may get to, I'll see if we have time. It's a beauty of exposition. You can just stop, pray, and pick it up the next week. But it says in verse 12, for as many have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these also, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. You read that, that's not light reading. You're like, golly, the law of law, and he has the law, their law, and the con. I remember when I first got saved, there was this real funny man who was a staff member at Teen Challenge. Lanky, tall, goofy, funny guy. I'll never forget him. His name is Brother Tate. Gangly, the way he walks, he was just the most, he was the oddest man I've ever met in my life. And one day, you know, I'm walking by the staff office and he was on duty and he calls me in there. He says, Josh, get in here. And he, he always, he was always reading his Bible. 
He was not the brightest man in the world, which is okay. He loved the Lord. But he goes, Josh, come here. And he had his Bible open, and I walked in there. He said, look at this. And he read verses 12 down to verse 16, as I just read to you. And he, he reads it, and I don't want to read it again right now. He throws the Bible out and goes, what in the world is Paul talking about? <laughs> just, he always would kick his legs. And it could get confusing when you don't understand the entire context of what is happening and then when you understand the context and how simple it is in, in reality to understand, if you dig in, it, it's profound. It's, it's, it's totally amazing. This, the, the, Paul addresses these guys in Romans 1 that are complete pagans. Wicked people who don't care about God's law written on stone. And he describes the most wicked of people. And then he turns to this religious person. And he says, you are also inexcusable. This judgment that you judge, in judging you condemn yourself. So that is such an interesting thing because in Matthew chapter 7, it gives us an aspect of the consequences of judgment. And in Romans chapter 2 here, it's a different kind of consequence for the wrong kind of judgment. Which is still in Matthew 7, the wrong kind of judgment. In Matthew 7, it says, judge not, lest you be judged. For which judgment you give to others is the same kind of judgment that you will get. And it's not just saying from others in Matthew 7. The idea, it leaves it open-ended. So the way that you judge is the way that you will get judged, not just by human beings, but it's the way that you will get judged by God. God will be merciful to those who are merciful. God will be gracious to those who are gracious. And so when we're unmerciful, not that God withholds all mercy because he still has great mercy to those who are unmerciful, but to the degree that God knows in that mystery, we still understand the truth of what the Bible is saying is that those who are unmerciful, God will treat with a lack of mercy. Not complete lack, not no mercy, because it's not within his nature not to be merciful. Essentially what the Bible is describing is not somebody who will receive less mercy, which they will, but more so in Matthew 7, it's essentially saying that those who give mercy will get greater mercy. So a consequences of judgment unto condemnation, self-righteous judgment that's being described in Romans chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 gives a consequence is that we will receive strict judgment. We will get the same kind of judgment that we give. Romans 2 is telling us a different kind of consequence. It is a consequence um, of blindness. That 
that we will not be able to see clearly. it's, It's all right there. It says, well, you're inexcusable. So you who are judging those of Romans chapter one are also inexcusable. You are guilty. You are complete. In Romans three, he's going to get it in more. In Romans five, for the wages of sin is death. All have sinned. I mean, you, you look at Romans three, it says there's none righteous in verse 10. No, not one. He's going to get to that point where he goes off. None seek after what is good. None understands All have turned aside. They've all become unprofitable. So he separates that complete hedonist, pagan, just going after those at TMT. Those wicked party revelers, sexually immoral, homosexual, lesbian, murder, idolaters. Those are TMT. But he also addresses, as you move over about 50 feet, those at Calvary Chapel Eldoret who have become religious. That's the danger. In many ways, it's not the danger that our church completely moves over to TMT, partying all the time, which that may be a few people in our church. You know what is a greater danger, I believe, is the danger of moving over into a religious system that points its finger at others. And you guys know the old saying, I hope, when you point your finger at others, you have how many fingers pointing back at you? Three. You point your finger at somebody, you got three more pointing at you. That's the danger. We go pointing around to all these sinners. And in our religious ceremonies and practices, we now become self-righteous and justified. That's what Paul is dealing with here in uh, this portion of Scripture and in many parts of the book of Romans. The friendly, the kind, the charitable, those who give their money. And in their kindness, in their friendliness, in their financial charity and other forms of charity, they become self-satisfied. I I try to find words that can kind of help us understand the gravity of the dangers that we can slip into this. And it's interesting because I don't want you to think because we're at Calvary and we do accept the the worst of us, I'm one of them, that you can't transfer from initially being Romans chapter one to very quickly becoming the person that Paul's describing in Romans chapter two. We've seen it in scripture. Maybe one of the greatest examples of that is to me one of the most profoundly godly men in all of scriptures is David, the king. Who is just, you, you read about David's life and you read the words of David in the book of Psalms and then you read Um, the the actions of David in 2 Samuel, the kind of discernment, the kind of wisdom that came from this man, the the lack of caring about 
what his men and the nation thought of him to being completely enraptured with what God wanted for him. And you just, you, I, don't, I hope you've experienced, I have just been in awe of David at times. And then all of a sudden, he's slipping in his older age. He's out on the rooftop and he sees Bathsheba, this beautiful woman, and he desires her. He knows she has a husband, but her husband's off at war. They go in and have this uh, 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 relationship. She becomes pregnant. He facilitates the murder of Uriah, her husband. Nine months later, without any repentance, without any remorse, without any regret, and whatever our word I can think to describe this, the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, hey, there was a man, very wealthy man, over here, and uh, he had many livestock, many lambs, many sheep. But he wanted this family pet of this very poor man. They only had one little lamb. And he took it from him. And David, being a shepherd himself for many years, says, I want that man to give it back and then I want him to die. Death penalty. You guys know in God's law, if you've studied God's law, taking somebody's lamb is not the death penalty. It's only restitution. And David wants this guy to die. And then Nathan breaks open, you are that man. So you got David, who is Romans chapter 1, a complete recognition of his sin... And later on in his life becomes Romans chapter 2. The moralist, the self-righteous, the self-satisfied in his ceremonial religious deeds. John Stott, that great British theologian, says these words, very good words. What we are often doing in seeing our, is seeing our faults in other people. Judging them vicariously. That way we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. Isn't that amazing? He said we kind of subconsciously will see faults in other people that are actually the faults in our life. Judge them because we know it's wrong and understand the pleasure of righteous judgment, but in fact it's self-righteousness so that we don't have to look at ourselves and go through the pain of recognizing who we are. Very interesting. There's a, a few things that I've studied in, uh, looking at other people's points on this portion of scripture. Four things here that is going on in these 11 verses. You have blame, Four signs that you've become self-righteous. Four signs. Blame. Branding people. Bitterness and blindness. 
You look at the blame, verse one and two. You're inexcusable, oh man, you, because you judge. You're blaming people for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. Your judgment's not true because the first person you should have judged is yourself. And that's what Matthew 7 is saying. Take out the beam out of your eye and then you'll be able to see clearly the speck that is in somebody else's eye. And you, you practice such things as well. So they're blaming. They're judging. I mean, you see this all the time. People pointing the finger. Like I said earlier, these two people, I thank God I'm not like him. Oh, I thank God I'm not like her. He says that that you are judging people and you are practicing the same things. Because you remember as we talked last week, the standards of God are as such that God sees us as practicing the same things even when we don't physically do them. That when our minds are focused on on lust and pride, when our hearts are focused on lust, pride, and bitterness, then we become guilty of adultery and murder and all these different things. Not only that, this is, this is very interesting. Please, please try to get this. When, we, when, 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 when Jesus Christ, our King, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 and 7 and, and 8, and he goes on that incredible revelation of increasing, of amplifying our understanding of what is true, our understanding of what is real, what is reality. Because he's not changing what is true. What is true 2,000 years ago when he preached the Sermon on the Mount was true when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. So he's not bringing something that's new. He's trying to correct an interpretation of what truly is sin. What truly is righteous. And I've talked to you guys a lot, a lot about what is adultery and murder and all these things. But understand, we classify sins, and, and though the penalty for sins on earth is not the same, and that would be silly, but the penalty of sin itself still is separation from God for all eternity without salvation. And, and when we focus, Jesus focuses, you guys, you're adulterers, you're murderers, but guess what? There are sins within a religious community that become so justified. And God hates these sorts of sins as much as he hates adultery or murder or stealing, like gossip, and slander, and strife, division. I mean, the, these kind of Pharisees were riddled with such things. Our church is riddled with such things. And you look at it and you're just like, man, 
Do you know that, that the Bible says that God hates a divisive person? Don't, don't say something about somebody behind their back that you wouldn't say to their face. He, you, you, people come into even churches and they're like, oh, those murderers and drunkards and, and, and thieves, those mwezies and all these people. And then we come in and we start slandering our fellow brethren and sistren, if that's a word. And gossiping and there's strife and there's envy, jealousies. And we look at those as more justifiable. Oh, okay, I talked about that person. I can't stand them anyways. It's like, well, you know what? God looks down and he says, I'm going to classify you with the murderer. I'm going to put you in the camp with the thief. So it's not just that he increases the standard of what adultery and murder and, and, and idolatry is, but he also lumps those heinous sins with also the heinous sins of gossip and slander and strife and envy and jealousies. And he does that in Romans chapter 1. So, so when he says here, those who are blaming, those who are pointing the finger, what he says here is that it's not just these sexually immoral sins it's this gossip it's this division I hate the divisive person I hate division God says I hate when people go in and because of a pers personality preference they begin to speak bad about people you see this here secondly you see this branding Similar to blaming or brashness, it's sitting as a judge while standing before the judge. It says there in verse 3, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practice such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So you are branding somebody as a sinner, as a wicked person, but you yourself will not escape the judgment of God. It says there, O oh man, you who judge practice the same things. But at the beginning, it begins where? And do you think? It begins in the mind, the judgments that we have for others. Because in the reason it begins in the mind, these False judgments, these inaccurate judgments, or even if they're accurate about others, they're inaccurate because you think others are less than you. That's the idea of what Paul's describing. Thinking is the problem. It evaluates, estimates, calculates on logic alone. In fact, that word thinking Logozima is the Greek word. It's where we get our English word logic. And so when Paul says here in this verse 3, and you think, you who judge, he's saying you are judging based on logic alone. There's no theology in your 
thinking. There's no anthropology in your thinking. That's the study of man, which Romans uh, is the greatest anthropological book in all of the Bible, describing man exactly how they are. Logic without theology leads to a false reality where we are the heroes of our own story and everyone else is wrong and in the way. Let me repeat that. Logic without theology leads to believing a false reality where we are the heroes of our own story and everyone else is wrong and in the way. When our minds are operating without the revelation of God's word, then we will always be inaccurate in our assessments, in our calculations, in our evaluations. Also, there's bitterness. Verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath. You, you, what Paul is doing here, and, and it's interesting, it's like, why is Paul throwing in, and we talked a lot about this in kind of a, sermon more last week on a topic of his goodness but he throws in this 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 topic this reality this truth of the goodness of God in the middle of a portion of scripture when he's talking about the sin of man and when you you, you can at first be like this is an odd place for this let's Let's talk about the goodness of God at the end of the book or a different place. But in reality, it's a perfect place for this because we can never see the greatness uh, of God without the, the wickedness of man. We can never see the highness of God without the lowness, the lowness of man. So Paul's like, you, you, they're wicked, you're wicked, he's good. And in light of your wickedness, it speaks of how great and good he is. And it uses those words of forbearance. That is forbearing, that is foregoing proper judgment, physical judgment. He withholds judgment. Noah. 120 years. Noah built a boat and preached righteousness. Which, by the way, is a problem for the Calvinist. And to say foreknowledge is not connected, I'm not saying it explains it perfectly, but to say foreknowledge is not connected to destiny in any way is wrong. Because God knew he was going to have to kill all those people. He knew that he would judge the whole world but why does he tell Noah to preach? And why was Noah a preacher of righteousness? Because God wants these people to repent. That's why. It's as simple as that. 120 years of it. Preaching and building, building and preaching. And they don't repent. But he, for, he forbeared with them. His forbearance was with them. And then his people. When the first Prophecy went out in the Old Testament that 
the nation of Israel was going to be led into captivity by the Babylonians for 70 years. Do you know how many years was from the first prophecy that went out until the nation of Israel went into captivity for 70 years? For 800 years, God sent prophets in to tell them if they do not repent, then the Babylonians are going to take them into captivity, even before the Babylonians were a superpower. 800 years he forbeared with those people. You see this other word used right there, long-suffering. This is a very interesting word. Macromethia is the, the Greek word. Do you know what this means? The thuma at the end. Um, so you have this macro. It's this major judgment. The massive judgment. Okay? And it's interesting because in chapter 2 where this macro thuma or macromethia uh, um, word is being used. It is describing in Romans chapter 2. The judgment of God at the end of the age. It's describing the white throne judgment. And this word that he is long suffering, macrothuma or macromethia, that macro is the major judgment. It's not a minor judgment uh, like micromethia or microthuma. This long-suffering is a major judgment. And the thuma, do you know what thuma means? This, uh, the ending of this Greek word and composition here is anger. That he suffers long while being angry the whole time. That's what it's saying. That his long-suffering, don't think it's like, oh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just soft and oh, I don't want to... Oh, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can punish. I don't know if I can pour out my wrath. No, that's not what the word means. That macrothum or macromethia, it's saying he is, he is withholding, he is suffering long while being angry the whole time. It's very scary. It's interesting. And, and, and it goes along with what the context is you are storing up for yourselves judgment on the day of wrath and every sin that you commit, wrath upon wrath, don't think it's just, okay, I'll excuse that one or excuse this one. No, every one that the unbeliever commits without repentance at the end of the age, at the white throne judgment, they come in and God says, I got everyone and I've been angry the whole time and now is the day of your judgment. I will suffer with you no more. That's what long-suffering is. Very fascinating. He's not like us parents. And guys, if you get one thing today, which I hope you get a bunch, but get this. Always look at the contrast of who God is in light of who you are without you being blind or deceived about who you are. I hope you do that because as a parent, I'm weak. Like, hey, guys, it's not good to threaten a spanking. Just spank or don't spank. And, and, and you need to spank at times, just so you know. And, and do it without anger and don't do it with, on their backs. I've seen, you know, out of control school teachers here in Kenya, you know, right over the back of the kids. Makes you want to hurt them. But, but as a parent, I, I can 
long-suffering is different for me than it's, for it is him. I'm weak in my discipline. I'm like, oh gosh, I don't want to spank him. <sighs> you, you, you know, you got to be real objective. It's like, I'll give you a spanking. You stop that. And they'll stop me. It's like, and you may say it 10 times before you actually do it. Not God. His long-suffering is you will get a spanking. And that's a light word compared to what is being described. God's wrath for every single sin that you committed if you're not born again, without repentance. You're storing up wrath on the, he is long suffering, but he's angry the whole time. <laughs> Macrothuma, long suffering. And then it says this word here, goodness. It says, do you despise the goodness of God? They do despise it. Religious people hate that people get forgiven. Did you know that? Oh, they're going to be forgiven? It's not fair. I don't want them to be forgiven. Do you guys, I, I know it's kind of an American story, but have you ever heard of the serial killer Ted Bundy? Just an awful man. I don't even want to describe here. It'd be inappropriate to the atrocities that he committed. And yet, James Dobson goes to interview this guy because he wanted to talk to James Dobson about God. And over several hours, James Dobson led him to the Lord as he's weeping and getting born again. James Dobson's testimony was, by all accounts, it looked very genuine to me. Can you guys deal with the fact that somebody like Ted Bundy is killing several people and doing terrible things to them? Could be with us in heaven? He may be. He may just be. People despise. Do you know when James Dobson left the prison where he was and told the world that he received Christ, that all over the news was people making comments about how ridiculous it was to think that somebody like Ted Bundy could be born again. Christian people, people in the church. Another, um, I don't know if you guys remember a, a, a television program that has been on in Kenya and it was back in the day. It's called PTL, Praise the Lord Television Network. With... Um, uh, Tammy Faye Baker, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. And Jim Baker, it, you know, there was uh, rumors that he was in homosexual behavior. They stole a lot of money as well. And they got caught. And, and though Tammy wasn't completely apprised of all the money that was being st uh, stolen, so she didn't go to jail, Jim Baker went to prison. And one day while at prison... Completely shamed. Um, the guards came to him and said, hey, there's a visitor here for you. And he said, I don't want to visit anybody. He said, no, you're going to want to visit this guy. And uh, they brought him a suit. He's like, just put a suit on. You got a real special visitor. And he says, I'm not wearing the suit. If he wants to see me, he can see me in this. And dirty mop water in his prison outfit, his stripes. And he walks out. And there was Billy and Ruth Graham there to visit him. And Billy came and gave him a hug 
and said, if you repent, God will forgive you. It's incredible. Billy Graham got ridiculed by many of the Reformed community about visiting the heretic, Jim Baker. You sit there and you're like, Ali. In fact, one of my issues with the Reformed movement is not as much their theology, which I don't, it's their attitudes towards sinners. Their Presbyterian, and I'm not saying the Presbyterian movement, their Presbytery piousness. I don't like it. It's, it grosses me out that they would criticize the notion that even though Jim Baker was wicked in what he did, that he could be saved, that he could be forgiven. The notion that Ted Bundy could be forgiven. God's sacrifice is greater than Ted Bundy's and Jim Baker's sin put together. In fact, it's greater than all the sins of all humanity put together for all time. And we need to be very careful who we brand, who we blame, the bitterness that we got talking about God's goodness. You know what's interesting in this talking about God's goodness? The scripture that really radically changed my life. I was dealing with this about, I guess, 15 years ago now when I first got saved. I think I've been saved about 16 years. But man, I'm getting old. Now I have, we got a hand clapped up here. Yeah, praise the Lord. One person's excited about my salvation. You know, what's interesting is I was counting the years, and I just realized this on stage, that for the longest time, I smoked pot longer than I'd been saved. From the age of 11 to 21, I smoked marijuana. And I, and I used to tell people, I smoked marijuana longer than I've been saved. Now I've been saved longer than I smoked marijuana. Praise the Lord. One of the scriptures that really transformed my life was 1 John 3, 19 and 20. A life verse, if you will. The Bible says that if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart and he knows all things. If your heart condemns you not, you have confidence towards God. You know what really blows me mind about that verse? Blows my mind. Is that God knows more. In fact, he knows everything. So he knows every single thought, every single wicked thought, every single wicked intention, every single wicked motivation that we have ever had, and he still doesn't condemn me. And I have the audacity, the unmitigated gall to condemn myself. His sacrifice is greater than my sin. It, it, isn't that amazing? It's, it's incredible. Do you know I believe that through the process of the fall of man and us not being able to use our brains actually saves us from completely exploding or being incinerated with shame and condemnation? Follow me down this road for a minute. If we could remember every single sin that we committed in our minds and our hearts, 
we would fall down dead of shame. Just completely collapse every one of us instantly in this room right now if we had the capacity mentally to remember every sin. Now, there is the capacity to forget every sin, which is another problem. But can you imagine it? Can you imagine remembering every one? You would just explode with condemnation. Also, can you imagine loving people the way God loves people? We would also die of complete depression and anxiety. I was leaving a funeral one time. And it was a member of our church. John Kuto, maybe some of you remember him. He's a member of way back in the day. And about 100 meters before he got to a gate was his little baby girl, three-year-old waiting for him for daddy to get home from work. Robbers came out with a rungu and hit him in the head, killed him, took his phone that was only around 3,000 shillings anyways, killed him right on the spot. When Kelsey and I were leaving the funeral, I noticed something about myself that made me appreciate God all the more, his goodness, what we're talking about. And I noticed that Paris, his wife, and family members were going through a lot more pain than I was. That on the way home, me and Kelsey started planning our evening of food and entertainment. Hey, is, what are we going to eat tonight? We're talking about it. Kelsey's like, well, I can cook this. And then I was like, you want to watch a movie tonight or something? He's like, yeah. We and I thought to myself, man, what if I love those people like God did? It's a good thing I don't. Because I would just die. Because he loves every single person. In fact, it's going to say in what we read, there's no partiality with God. And when he sees the pain that people go through, he is going through more pain than the, than the wife who lost her husband, than the daughter who lost her father. And that's for the whole world of all time. We would just explode. We would die. And so in 1 John 3, when it's talking about that that God doesn't condemn us and he knows everything about us, we would condemn, we would die of shame if we knew every sin, if we had the capacity to remember everyone. And yet those who don't get born again, he has remembered every single one of them and he will store up his anger on the day of wrath, wrath upon wrath with every sin that has ever been committed by the unregenerate. Also, you get blindness. Verse 5, you see that there. We've read it. Let me read it again. But in accordance with the hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. You're blind. Your hard heart won't allow you to see clearly. Your irreverent mind and heart heart won't allow you to see clearly. You, you're blind about who you are. And because of this blindness, because of this hardness, because of this deception, it is preventing you from repentance and salvation. And you will be judged, he's saying. 
It's interesting. I want to finish out here. He says here after that in verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. And then he goes on this interesting thing. It's not hard to understand, but I want to explain it. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patience, continuance, and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. At the beginning, it's saying those who seek for immortality, those who do good and glory and honor. It's not saying that those people are saved and then those who, store, who are doing immorality and, and those um, are unsaved. It is describing what we've been talking about. In Romans 1, those who don't seek for righteousness, those who don't seek for immortality, yes, and who are completely wicked in all of their pagan practices, they are without excuse. It's going to go down when we talk about next week the law of the Gentiles that don't have a law and the Jews have a law and their consciousness will condemn them and their law will condemn them and without a word they're still condemned and with the word all that stuff that seems confusing but it's not it, it, it's saying that those in Romans 1 who don't seek after these things are unsaved and he's and and what it's saying in Romans 2 is those who do seek after these things if they can attain righteousness through the seeking of righteousness, if they can attain righteousness with their desire of um, immortality, if they're righteous, if they're purely righteous in their walk, they will be saved. Here's the thing, and Paul's going to go on describing this in the book of Romans. It's a futile attempt. They cannot. It's not saying, okay, those, it almost seems like their works are going to save them. No, it's saying you keep working as hard as you want, and if you are perfectly righteous, you'll be saved. But, but he's being sarcastic. You are a sinner too. Don't think that you, you got to understand that even one sin is being stored up on the day of wrath. So you've sought for immortality? You won't get it. You've sought for righteousness within yourself. You won't get it. it, it it's like when Jesus, and, and the worship team, why don't you come up? It's like when Jesus Christ is brought and, and he's going and the, these Pharisees come and they throw a prostitute down in front of him. And they say, hey, she's an adulterer. The law says that she is to be stoned. What do you say? Jesus, just brilliant. He's writing in the sand. And he says, I got, I, I got your answer. He who is without sin cast the first stone. You who are righteous, you who have sought for immortality, you've made your focus religion If you're not guilty of any sins, I want you to throw the first stone. And one by one, they leave. One by one. Because 
what Jesus did is he turned and he said, evaluate yourself before you evaluate her. Evaluate yourself before you evaluate her. When you truly evaluate yourself, you will come to the realization, yes, I am a sinner. And then Jesus, after all of those people had left, Jesus Christ looks down towards this woman and says, where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? Where are they? She says, there are none. You know what's interesting is the only person who had the right to stone her was Jesus Christ. He's the only person. Right there, he could have said, hey, there is somebody here that can accuse you. There is somebody here who has the right to stone you. It's me. But that's essentially what he's saying when he says, listen, neither do I accuse you. Or neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's, it's what's happening in Romans chapter 2. It says, okay, you self-righteous, you who seek for immortality, you'll be saved if you do it. Cast the first stone. You start judging people if you're perfect. The whole point is that they're not. It's the whole point. What is the lesson for us today? This is the lesson, church. That we can easily, like David, transfer from being that person who is so grateful for forgiveness to becoming a religious, ceremonial person who starts pointing the finger at other people. And truly, when you want to grow in the grace of the Lord, in the mercies of God, in the joy of Christ, then you need to focus on His righteousness, His goodness. And then when you do that in light of who you are, you will appreciate him so much more and you will see the world a lot clearer. And we need to. It is so easy to become self-righteous. We need to look towards the God of Abraham. We need to look towards our God and say, God, you are truly the only one who has the right to judge people's sin and condemn them. We can judge certain sins, I'm not going to let my daughter go out with a guy who rolls up to the house with a Playboy magazine in his back pocket and with a bottle of whiskey in his truck. I can judge, say, get out of here or I'll break your neck, you know, something like that. I think I can still say that, right, Joe? But, but what we're talking about is a judgment and con- con- condemning people, condemnation, heaping condemnation on people. As if you don't need the same kinds of mercies and the same kinds of forgiveness that the rest of the world needs. That's what's being talked about. 